0: chapter 2 and verse 44 reads now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need and so continually continuing daily with one accord in the temple breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. One afternoon, some months ago, having done some research to discern the difference between communism and socialism, I was struck by something I read concerning socialism. For in the middle of the article, as I was reading it, it stated that socialism was the approved government of the New Testament church, that the New Testament church endorsed socialism. And it pointed to the last part of the second chapter of Acts and to the one verse for which that great assumption was made. They had all things in common. All the believers were together and had all things in common. That no one in essence, called anything their own. Now, why I bring this up? Because I'm afraid that there's a rising tide of socialists among our congregation. No. I don't even think anybody's leaning that way. But it is surprising to see the amount of popularity that it has gained in our own land in the past decade. And socialism is actually a government, a collection of people, which brings about governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods the means of production and the distribution of goods is controlled by a central government. What could go wrong? I believe it was in Holland this past week. 30% of the farms were told to shut down. 30%. In a time where nations are running into shortages of food, why? because of Russia, Russia, Russia. 30% of those farms were told to shut down because of a threat of climate change. And when the government controls the means of production, they can do things like that. In communism, you don't own anything. It's given to you by the government. It is, for sure, a totalian, to, uh, totalian system where a simple... Authoritarian party controls the state owned means of production. Authoritarian party. But note the difference in verse 44. They were together. And then they had all things in common. And then in verse 45, and they sold what possessions? There, Possessions and goods. The ESV uses the words. Belongings. So we note the possessive pronoun. Their. Their possessions. It was in their hands. Now last Wednesday night. We looked at the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And we noted that it forbids. The meddling with another's property. God says there is such a thing as private property and you are to leave it alone. If I am to steal something, what have I done? I have taken something that does what? Does not belong to me. Covetousness usually has to do with wanting something that is in possession of someone else. The Israelites were given lands by God to the 11 tribes. If you remember the 12th tribe, Levi, did not get a land possessed to them. They were to have a special inheritance in each of the 11 tribes' possessions. And when the portions were taken, then they were distributed amongst the people of the tribe. And that would be their land, their parcel, their property. Subject to all the protections in the law concerning private property. Just really quickly in Deuteronomy chapter 23... Verse 24, Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your full of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. You can eat a handful here and there, but you can't harvest When you come in your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hands, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Now this assumes then as you're walking along, you come to a place and you see a fairly sure line that says, this parcel belongs to my neighbor. That's his property. And Scripture is telling us you have to acknowledge this. You have to see. Your neighbor has property and you cannot take things as you wish from there. And of course it's carried off into the New Testament as well. Paul tells the Thessalonians to work in quietness and do what? Eat their own bread. But let us return to the book of Acts to see how just taking one verse out of context can be a big mistake. If we turn in Acts chapter 4 to verse 32, we once again see somewhat of a repetition. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. You can make some big mistakes by speaking too broadly here. What's he getting at? Well, it's saying that they are still Owning possessions. But it's like this if I had two axes and you had none, and you were desperately in need of an axe, that I would give you my spare axe. And in giving it to you, it becomes your possession, not mine anymore. Because I've given it to you. As you have need. So it will no longer be my possession. It will be yours. But what happened? I voluntarily did this. It was mine to give to you. And we see what happens in chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, I wanted to read that part of chapter 4 so you could see that everything that was started in Acts chapter 2 is, is continuing. There hasn't been a change. There's still the great harmony amongst the people. There's still the great accord. There's still the great movement of the Spirit Nothing has changed. But we remember that the church is still made up of fallen human beings. The coming of the Holy Spirit did not make perfect people. And so when we look back at those days, we can't say, well, they didn't do anything wrong. And, boy, wouldn't it be great to have those days where we didn't do anything? Because there never was a time when we didn't do anything wrong. So the conditions haven't changed. Generosity was still being exercised. Here a couple sells a possession. They do it not because they had to, but we see they want to be part of the movement. This was an early New Testament version of virtue signaling. Everybody's doing it. We need to do it. We need to show how much we care. So they agreed to say they were giving all of the proceeds of whatever they were selling. But yet they they kept a certain part for themselves. But in verse 2 they make a big production out of it. Kept back the proceeds wife also being aware. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. Look, we sold it. And they might have even broken it down into smaller bills so that it's a bigger stack. And they laid a portion of it at the disciples' feet. So it's, there's a procedure going on. There's this whole thing of, of a production Here is every bit of the money from our sale. Yep, we're giving it all to the poor. Now what happened next, and all the ramifications of it, is for another time, but instead let's focus for a moment on Peter's response. In verse 3, Peter makes clear. He knows Ananias was lying. And to add insult to it all, how Greatly unnecessary it was. And Peter makes it clear. It's so unnecessary for them to lie. It is hardly ever. You can't even come up with a time where it is necessary. Even if your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? You don't have to lie. That's some dress. So, unnecessary, verse 4, he says to Ananias, while it remained, that is when it was in your possession, you, you had control of it, it was yours. In fact, the very selling of it by you proved that it was yours. And after you sold it, you were in control of the proceeds from selling it because you sold what you owned and therefore the money you got for it was your money. Twice we see the repetition of those two words, your own. Well, what do we understand from this? Well, not everybody was selling or donating everything they had. They, they gave instead of what they could spare in, in to those in need. The spare things that they did not call their own. Secondly, it was not a requirement. It was not a requirement to turn over 100% of what you received in the sale. If we go back to Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. When Zacchaeus climbs down from the sycamore tree and Christ comes to to eat, have a meal at his house, in the midst of the meal, in Luke 19 and verse 8, Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. To which Jesus replied, Why not 60%? No, there's nothing said at that. This was a a great gesture uh, on the part of Zacchaeus. I'm sure he was was in a tremendously uh, powerful financial position. And he says, I'm giving half to the poor. Now, in saying I'm giving half, he's also saying I'm keeping half. And there's no problem with that. He's being honest about it. It's his money to do what he wants to with. If he wants to give half of it, go ahead do it. Jesus is not requiring 100% from him. And Ananias could have done the same. He could have said here's 10% of what I sold. No problem. Here's 40%. No problem. It was purely voluntary. Peter said it was in your control. Yet today, and in the past, there have been those who think the Christian way should perhaps even be a commune. It's always a safe bet, isn't it, when a group of people start a commune under the name of Christ. What could go wrong there? Virtually every single time it's happened to turned into a cult. communal living. In medieval times, monks lived in cloisters. How about to be a poet back then? They lived in cloisters and they ate oysters. But only if they lived by the sea. That didn't rhyme. Communism, my friends, is not by any means a new idea. Uh, back in the fifteen hundreds, early fifteen hundreds, John Calvin was, who, by the way, it was part of the mindset behind our government. John Calvin said of Acts two verse forty four that this place needs sound exposition because of fanatical spirits which do feign a commonality in participation of goods. And then he asked the question, if this was the case that they had everything in common and didn't call anything their own, what of their wives... They say, well, you don't have a wife. I have one here. No, it's obvious. They didn't say, come live in my house and tell me how to live. No, they had private control of their own houses. They had private control of their own families. They had private control of their own possessions. To read something else into this is to read something that doesn't exist to read something you want to see there, and I don't know why you would want to. Right from the garden, there was an establishment of personal property, of things that belonged to people. But let us come down to the most important of all considerations. Those who distort this passage as a brief for socialism have to at least admit something unwittingly. And that is for mankind to exist, there has to be a form of government, a governmental structure. Man needs governing. Say, well, yeah, that's that's true after the fall. No, it's true before the fall. God gave Adam laws to live by. Commands he had to live by. Strictures that he had to follow. Not just what to eat from the the trees, but there was be fruitful and multiply. He, He set them in there to... To tend the garden, so there had to be a certain way that the garden was to be tended. So even in our unfallen state, we did need governing. And after the fall, it became even more of a necessity, along with a system and a body of enforcement. And those who think systems such as communism and socialism will work and be delightful are very much naive and very much removed from the biblical understanding of man. They almost think that these systems would remove greed and corruption, and whenever they've been used, they did the opposite and showed the extent of greed and corruption that man will show. If you notice, socialism and particularly communism are practiced by nations that have no Christian background. They might have Christians living in that country, but their, their country has not been moved by Christians. The framers of the Constitution, while well, not all Christians, they had read and they had been taught enough scripture To distrust the nature of fallen man. Have you noticed that there's a certain group in our government symbolized by this hand as opposed to this hand? That whenever they talk about our government, they talk about democracy. It's not what we do at a democracy. They won't say what we really are. We are a representative republic. But the next time you hear any of them speak, you'll hear democracy, democracy. And you see, our founding fathers knew enough about the natural depravity of man that they didn't trust mob rule and so they set up a representative republic and this is purely opinion on my point you don't have to agree with me purely opinion but i think a representative republic is the best form of government you can have for fallen mankind communism socialism they just feed the natural depravity of man because no matter how they set it up, and, and you always hear people who say, we want to have socialism, listen to them, they say, well, has it? Always, it's always failed in the past. Yes, but it just wasn't implemented right. Well, why wasn't it implemented correctly? Because of the nature of man. That power will always corrupt, and if it's really centralized, it'll be really corrupt in that center. Because when you give sinners the amount of power that government can have to affect people's lives, they just get more and more vicious about keeping it. To me, the question is what is it that the Bible endorses? What's the biblical form of government? Make sure nobody's got some rotten vegetables they're ready to throw. The Bible endorses a magisterial monarchy with Christ as the king. This is the reality of the church. If you're in the kingdom of God, guess what? A kingdom has to have a king or it's just dumb. (laughs) We're in God's kingdom. And this will always be the government of heaven. For Christ will always be the king. Maybe in these hot days which are normal for this time of year, despite what the weather people say. In Isaiah chapter 9, those familiar words that have been sung, that have been rejoiced in, and when we come to in verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will what? Be upon his shoulder. His name we call Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice when from this time forward and forever. And so we sing, and He shall reign forever and ever. But don't miss what it says there in verse 7. What does he do with his kingdom? He orders it and establishes it. Why? Because he's king. And even when we are we go through our final step. That is when we go through that last act of transformation. As we enter into heaven we will still need a king. And we will always have a king. He will always be king. He's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. And before him, every knee shall bow, whether under the earth or above the earth or in heaven above. Earthly governments are the design and dreams of men and they will fail and fade. And there will be a time... When our representative republic is over, it'll happen. But there's one eternal kingdom that won't ever change. His kingdom shall have no end. And I want you to see as we finish, it's His kingdom. Whenever we look at the kingdom of God, we never have active verbs in regard to us. People talk about, well, we're kingdom builders. We're not. If you're a kingdom builder, you're building a kingdom for yourself because Christ will build his own kingdom. It's not up to you. Well, we're growing the kingdom. No, we don't do that. What do we do then? We enter into the kingdom. We don't make it bigger. We don't enlarge it. We don't control it by any means. We, we by grace, enter into that kingdom. And in that kingdom is the Lord Christ enthroned forever and ever. A great and wonderful magisterial monarchy. And so we ask, have you bowed to the king? Have you rejoiced in his kingdom? And do you long to appear before that king? Let's stand together for prayer.